This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gerson of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gerson. How are you today? Great, Liz. Good morning. And I'm, I'm really excited about the show. Um, we're happy to welcome back uh, my, my colleague, uh, Chris Green, who is the uh, not only a professor of law, but he's the Jamie L. Winton Chair in Law and Government. And that's one of the most prestigious chairs at the university. Um, and today he's going to talk about the process we've been we've been witnessing, um, the, the appointment process for Supreme Court justice, but also just the advise and consent process for any appointment and also for treaties. And so it's great to have you back on the show, Professor Green, and welcome back. And you're a legal historian as well as a constitutional law expert. What, what is the history behind this concept of advice and consent? Well, thanks for having me on again. It, um, this is, so this is something we put in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution. And uh, you look at the wording of this provision, and it pretty clearly is, is, is a bit of a kludge. Uh, uh, but this, this gives uh, basically the Senate plus the president has this uh, uh, collection of powers. And uh, I mean, the short answer about where it came from is it's more or less invented at the Philadelphia Convention. Um, the English tradition of legislative and executive power um, all during the 18, uh, the 1700s, the 18th century, was gradually getting more and more dominated by Parliament. So the legislature was basically where you went uh, to get an appointment. If you were a friend of William Pitt, that was much more important. Uh, if you wanted to run important parts of the government, that's more important than being a friend of, of George III. Being a friend of George III got you certain uh, advantages, no question about it. And, you know, uh, it, it, it got you some appointments, uh, could get you, but Parliament was really uh, running the show at that point. So what the Philadelphia Convention does, we set up these three branches. So legislative power goes to Congress. We got, we got two chunks of, of Congress, the House, the Senate. Uh, presidential power, executive power, goes to the president under Article II. Judicial power goes to the, the courts, uh, again, structured between the Supreme Court and the, uh, the lower courts, Article III. But then we have this provision where the Senate from the legislative branch gets these uh, uh, powers. And basically, these two powers that they get together, one of them is kind of a classically uh, uh, sort of lawmaking power. It's actually a lawmaking power that had belonged to the British monarch, the power of making treaties. Um, but uh, it, it's clear if you look at Article VI, these treaties that are going to get made, they're part of the supreme law of the land. Okay, so, so that's sort of a lawmaking power. And then also the very same group, uh, uh, the president and the Senate uh, can... Uh, uh, well, it says the president shall nominate and buy and with the advice of the consent appoint 
ambassadors, uh, other public ministers and consuls, uh, and basically non-inferior officers with the advice and consent of the Senate. So early on, it was, it was just very unclear, uh, both with treaties and with appointments, who exactly was going to be doing the negotiating. So some of the senators, uh, there's actually a whole lot of people who thought, well, the Senate, the people from the Senate are actually going to go out and negotiate treaties uh, on their own and sort of conduct part of the foreign policy of the United States. And it became uh, clear early on that wouldn't uh, really be a good idea. So the president sort of negotiates the treaties. Um, he actually, you know, he sends people to do it. Uh, and then the, uh, the Senate can say yes or no. Um, but you have a similar sort of question about uh, judges. So are these people getting suggested by senators? Is that the idea? Uh, or are they getting uh, suggested by the president? Uh, it's completely unclear. The only thing that's clear is they both have to say yes. So uh, the, the Senate can, uh, can say no for uh, basically any reason or no reason. Uh, the president cannot nominate somebody. Uh, for any reason or no reason. And uh, it's been a long, long tug of war, um, uh, both between the president and the Senate and kind of among different factions of different parties uh, about over nominations. Uh, uh, George Washington had some nominees turned down by the Senate. Uh, you think, my goodness, everybody loved George Washington, but he had some had some nominees turned down. Uh, so they very, very early on took the idea of, of their naysaying role very, very seriously. Uh, they you know, they were a full partner. They had to say yes. They had to give their give their consent. Uh, so what we're what we're seeing today is, um, uh, you know, the product of that. If these, you know, if these uh, uh, runoff elections in Georgia turn out differently in January, you have a very, very, very different situation for President Biden uh, uh, trying to get somebody confirmed because uh, the Senate uh, can and does say no uh, if, they, um, if they, I mean, really, if they don't like the president, uh, I, that sometimes uh, uh, happens. We weren't able to broadcast our show in legal terms last week due to the Senate confirmation hearings for Kataji Jackson Brown. So we wanted to, since everyone listened to the hearings on MPB, we wanted to give folks a chance to call in, to ask their questions, to email their questions with our guest. Christopher Green, professor of law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. We are talking about how the authority, the power that the Senate has to advise and consent. You can send us those email questions to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Let's start off on the phone with Sue from Beaumont. Sue, we're glad you've called in this morning. What's your comment or question? Well, excuse me. I've often wondered why Supreme Court appointees don't have term limits. Even the president has term limits. Why are they appointed for life? Well, th so this is something that uh, it does come out of the English tradition. Um, the separation of executive and judicial power uh, is a relatively late uh, development. It's the uh, there's an actually an English statute in 1701 that gives uh, the uh, British monarch uh, uh, well basically basically takes away the British monarch's power to remove judges. So there was a worry during um, especially under the Stuarts uh, that the uh, judges were basically just operating under the thumb of the executive. They were the king's bench. You know that was one of the courts. Uh, and uh, so the, the, in 1701, they said, well, no, let's not allow that to happen. And they set up this standard of, of good behavior 
uh, and you can't uh, can't remove a judge. Most states, almost all the states, uh, have not followed that model, but the federal constitutional model, they followed that. And uh, of course, you know, in 1787, uh, life expectancy was tended to be a little bit uh, uh, shorter. You know, so people lived, you know, John Adams lived till he was, he was 90. So, you know, there were lots of long lived people, uh, but they, you know, they didn't think that this would be, uh, have people serving for 35 or 40 years, uh, the way, you know, frequently you get, get justices serving now. Uh, so, and, you know, like a lot of things, it's, a, it's an artifact of the time, the, the precise moment in which our constitution was designed. And uh, it's something that a lot of people have thought, uh, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should, we should change. You know, Chris, it's interesting. Um, if you look at uh, communist countries or former members of the Soviet Union countries, they didn't have an independent judi judiciary. I think people don't realize that. And, and uh, like, for example, Mongolia, um, I, I was fortunate to uh, meet some of the justices of the Supreme Court of Mongolia when I lived in Texas, and they, they were coming out of the Soviet system, and they were under a minister of justice that could remove them if the minister of justice didn't like their opinions. And yeah. so there's no independent, and so the, I think our democracy is protected by having an independent judiciary, and I'm really happy the Constitution is set up that way. And, you know, the, for the callers and for everyone listening, uh, you know, we could not have a better expert on, on this topic because Professor Green is one of the leading experts on, um, on governmental powers. He's uh, um, also, a, as I mentioned before, a, a constitutional historian. He's written numerous books and articles on constitutional law issues, so uh, we're really grateful to have his insights on this process that we're seeing taking place, uh, you know, right now, and we've seen, uh, you know, over the past few years. Um, so, Chris, you mentioned treaties before, and um, and also appointments. Are there different advice and consent requirements for treaties versus appointments? The only difference is that you have to have two thirds of the Senate for treaties. Um, and um, but yeah, the phrase is, is the same in in two 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 shall power by and with the advice of the consent to make treaties provided two thirds of the senators present concur and shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the senate shall appoint all these people. So it's it's exactly the same phrase, and um, yeah, I mean basically how much discussion the president wants to have with senators beforehand is uh, basically up to him. If 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 senators don't think they've been consulted enough, they can say no. Um, there's, a, there's a story. I don't know if we need to go to the break uh, uh, soon, but uh, there's a famous story in uh, 1982. Uh, the, uh, there was a dispute about uh, whether President Reagan would get uh, have to have a free hand about picking a nominee, and particularly in association with uh, Trent Lott, who was then in the House of Representatives. And uh, uh, Strom Thurmond, who was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, eventually had to put his foot down about the Senate's prerogatives, and he called in uh, uh, Trent Lott and Trent Lott's uh, 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 staff, who was actually Mike Wallace, later a nominee for the Fifth Circuit, but uh, brings in uh, Thad Cochran, brings in the president's people, and he says, well, you know, the president can nominate who he wants, but we will hold hearings on Senator Cochran's nominee. <laughs> so very clear, the Senate itself was standing up for its own individual senator's right to uh, to pick uh, pick the people, and that ends up uh, producing Judge Jolly for that seat because he was a he was a longtime uh, close associate of uh, of Senator Cochran, and uh, you know it just depends how much backbone 
different senators and different Senate committee chairs have at different times. This is so amazing. I mean, we're dropping personal stories. We're dropping, um, uh, we're dropping knowing judges from Mongolia. I am loving this show, and we would love you to participate in our show. You can send us an email with your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. So how are you liking our guest and our discussion about our Constitution and the way power is distributed? If, uh, like me, you're finding Professor Christopher Green interesting, I can tell you how you can hear more. That's coming up next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Jen White with NPR. If you're fortunate enough to have collected a few classic cars over the years, here's a thought. Give them a new life by donating one or more to support this station. They'll be matched with interested buyers, collectors just like you who know a great car when they see one. You free up some space in the garage, the classic car gets a new home, and proceeds support this station. It's a win-win. Thanks in advance. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of this program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Our guest is Professor Christopher Green, and he's been on our show before. In January uh, 29th of 2019, he talked about constitutional originalism. And in September 18th of 2018, our topic was about Supreme Court justices, and that was just after Justice Brett Kavanaugh's Senate confirmation hearing. This morning, we are learning how the Senate was given the ability to advise the president on judicial appointments. Advice and consent is our topic. We do have a call waiting. It's Let's go to South Haven and speak with Cornish. Cornish, thank you so much for calling in to in legal terms today. What's your comment or question? Yes, I have a, what may be a quick question. 
And uh, the question is, uh, why is it at the end of each uh, period, the end of each year, for example, or the end of each uh, congressional or senatorial period, doesn't somebody, uh, government, go to ahead and look at where the weaknesses are in uh, the laws that governs the country? and make changes before things blow up as they did on January 6th. Um, right now, you're subpoenaing, and nobody is paying attention to the subpoenas and uh, never-ending appeals and things like that, and uh, the Commission has no authority to say, listen, you've been subpoenaed to consider or to participate in the uh, most existential thing. Um, you need to step up, and if you don't, we're going to put you in jail until you, uh, you know, uh, respond. I'll hang up an answer for an answer. Thank you, Cornish. We appreciate you calling in. Well, the, the history of, um, you know, disputes about how exactly the presidential selection process happens after the Electoral College sends in its votes um, so we have the current statute uh, is called the Electoral Count Act, uh, passed in 1887. Um, this was a response, actually, to the uh, uh, huge, huge controversy in 1877. So it took them 10 years to come up with a legislative fix to figure out exactly what they were going to do uh, to prevent uh, another Hayes Tilden uh, a business. So basically in 1876, there were rival state governmental apparatuses that sent in electoral votes and uh, Congress had to decide which, uh, which uh, slate of electors votes to count. Um, it, was, it was very different from our situation in, in 2017 because uh, although the electors got together uh, the it's Trump electors in a number of states got together and sent in their votes. There was no official governmental apparatus from the state uh, that was siding with those. But even in 1876, as, as, as bad a crisis as that one, uh, that crisis, the 1876 to 1877 crisis, took 10 years to come up with a legislative fix. And a lot of people responded to the January 6th imbroglio and said, we have got to make it clearer in the electoral county. We gotta modify this legislative process just to make clear exactly what is going to happen. Uh, I think the, uh, the lack of clarity on that allowed uh, the president to convince himself. I, it's hard to know whether he really uh, believed it, uh, but, uh, but a lot of people thought that, president, that Vice President Pence had power that really he just didn't have. Uh, under the statute or under the constitutional provision, the 12th Amendment is now, now the provision for that. So you ask, you know, why does it take so long to fix things? Um, partly because people are uh, exploiting the process for political grandstanding on both sides, I think. Uh, they're being, um, just viewing it as more Manichaean and good versus evil uh, than maybe it should be. Uh, the good government types, Congress is able to pass certain legislation from time to time. Uh, they have, like, the, you know, when daylight savings time uh, uh, started, and everybody's like, ah, I can't stand this. The Senate passed a repeal of uh, daylight saving time unanimously, uh, so they are able to get together. To do something. I mean, that you know didn't become law yet. Uh, House hasn't said it's uh, said its piece, but you know all the senators are able to come together, you know, and agree on certain things. Uh, it's just they haven't seen uh, the uh, 
the good government uh, benefit for, for fixing the Electoral Count Act. Uh, you know, if you had a slight, really if you had a slightly more decisive majority either way, I think you could get that kind of reform coming through. But as it is, it's such a tightly divided, both the House and the Senate are so tightly divided, it's very, very difficult to, uh, uh, to craft a compromise that's not going to look like uh, demonizing one side or the other. Uh, and uh, that's it, you know, it's an extremely unfortunate aspect of how, how the D.C., uh, how the swamp works these days. But it, uh, it's how it is. So fascinating, it really is. It's a, a great answer to that question, Chris. And, and uh, you know, so let's let's talk about you know that that process a little bit. I mean, article, article you mentioned before, Article One really is the article that gives the legislators power, and Article Two is mostly about the executive branch. But it's in Article Two that we find this advice and consent given to the Senate. So there's some people who would argue then that really, if we're going to balance this power. The executive branch is intended to have more power in terms of these appointments than than the Senate. Um, is the Senate exercising too much power in this process? It's hard to say. Um, it depends what you want to get out of it. So, um, you know, the way it has worked with a lot of administrations uh, with the Senate is um, uh, so. I you know, at the beginning of the Trump administration, for instance, the. Uh, the Trump administration told the senators, well, you know, all these district court nominees, the, the trial court uh, federal appointees, you can pick, you know, whoever you want for those. Uh, you know, pick your friends, whoever's kind of prominent in the Mississippi legal community, whatever state, you know, they, they you know, pick, pick whoever, uh, uh, you know, is uh, uh, your friend, you know, Senator Cochran could pick, uh, uh, you know, Judge Jolly because he knows, he knows him really well. You know, you can, you can, you can do what you want with those. But the uh, uh, the president said, but those those appellate nominees, we really want those to be uh, somebody that we pick. So they just sort of announced this to the senators, and uh, um, that's sort of always the opening bid of of the uh, of the White House. Uh, the return bid is, well, you know, we've got a lot of these nice district court nominees that we'd like the district court judges that we would like to uh, elevate, and the senators frequently. Uh, will tell back to the White House, well, you know, elevate uh, one of these district judges, and there's a, a back and forth uh, uh, this year, uh, or in, in 2017 to 2018 to 2019, that whole process. Uh, one of the big tug of wars, well, tugs of war, was uh, between the senators wanting to elevate a district judge and the president wanting to, to bring in a president's people, uh, wanting to bring in uh, somebody straight at the the appellate level. And uh, a lot of it is patronage, uh, just the, the idea that certain people get to decide who, who gets certain jobs. Um, and there were certain candidates that uh, I, th I think would have been better served or would, would have had a better chance of getting certain appointments if they had been less uh, enthusiastically supported by certain people. It's, it's, it's crazy to think that uh, being uh, enthusiastically supported by one uh, uh, political entity can, can hurt your chances with others. But where people feel like they're losing face and giving in, uh, that's, uh, that's something that, you know, certain people in the political process just don't want to do. Uh, so, so with with Ketanji Brown Jackson, uh, she had been a long-term uh, trial judge, uh, very well respected. Got elevated to the D.C. Circuit. Uh, everybody was saying, well, you know, she was was is highly likely to be uh, uh, 
the sort of person to, to get elevated to the Supreme Court. The president, of course, when he was pre campaigning, promised, uh, uh, Representative Clyburn promised him, uh, I will appoint a, uh, a black woman to the Supreme Court when I get a chance. Uh, and that was a straightforward promise he made, a political campaign promise that he made uh, in order to get uh, that support and that was that was really that began the cascade of support for uh, President Biden in the in the primaries, uh, and he followed through. Um, then there was, it's hard to know how much of this theater was just sort of a kabuki theater about saying, oh, you know, how about this particular candidate from South Carolina, where I'm from, uh, and uh, I think the president uh, uh, certainly wanted to look like he was he was uh, uh, seriously considering. Uh, uh, you know other nominees, but I, I think just about everybody thought, yeah, uh, uh, Judge uh, Judge uh, uh, Jackson. Uh, she's been in D.C. Everybody knew her. She had lots and lots of Republican friends, uh, lots, you know, lots and lots of, of Democratic friends. It was it seemed pretty clear uh, that she was she was the front runner, and uh, it's not clear that you know how, how distant the, the the horse race was. We are learning today about the Senate's authority for advise and consent of the president on judicial appointments and also treaties. If you have a question about that, you can always send us your emails. Our address is mpislegalterms at mpbonline.org. Professor Christopher Green is our expert on on the Constitution, and he is uh, helping us out today. I had a question. Uh, I, you know, I saw this on social media or Facebook, and my policy there is to absolutely never read the comments, so I didn't see what other people said, but I do want to hear what you have to say. Someone had suggested if they didn't televise these hearings, maybe— the different political parties wouldn't get so entrenched because we were talking about Justice Jackson and she had been uh, overwhelmingly supported for her other positions that if uh, if there wasn't so much theater, you know, maybe only C-SPAN that nobody has cable anymore, so nobody watches, um, they wouldn't—it would have been more of a kumbaya, everybody come together point. What do you think about that, uh, Professor Green? Um, it's hard to know uh, exactly the influence of, of television on particular nominations. I think there's no question that television has completely transformed uh, how our public discourse functions. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll say I don't think it has uh, improved it. Uh, so there's a wonderful book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, uh, public dis it's the subtitles are something like Public Discourse in an Age of Show Business. Um, there's certain things you can do visually uh, that you can't do uh, in you know, just a radio format, for instance. So uh, there wasn't a whole lot of distinctively visual uh, stuff during the Katanji Brown here Brown uh, 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 Jackson hearings. There were some charts, uh, but they mostly had just text. The Kavanaugh and Barrett hearings, there were a lot of distinctive visuals. So the Kavanaugh hearings, there were some people who were allowed into the room who were then just disruptive. So you just had people screaming things uh, uh, regularly every 20, 30 minutes. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, you, that doesn't happen without television. Uh, I suppose it could happen with, with live audio. But then with Justice Barrett, uh, there were a whole bunch of just 
pictures of, uh, I mean, there were several dozen pictures of every single person who had ever been benefited by the Affordable Care Act, I think was the idea. And, you know, that was just, you couldn't imagine that work, you know, being anything like that on radio. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, really C-SPAN, when C-SPAN began existing, uh, it was a wonderful educational thing. It still is a wonderful educational thing. Uh, Newt Gingrich, actually, back before he even became uh, Speaker of the House, he was the, one of the pioneers. He realized, man, there's cameras rolling. Even if the House chamber is empty, I can get on and give a speech and then, you know, send a link to that speech and look like I'm addressing Congress. So, you know, he's addressing, you know, some issue of the day. And uh, the, the beginning of using of, of C-SPAN and these, these hearings as a sp specifically political medium. And uh, you know, others both sides of like, hey, that's that's uh, that's a way we can do this. Um, I do think it is a useful political theater in certain respects, but uh, it's it's got a lot of clown show aspects uh, that I think you, you wouldn't get if it weren't uh, if it weren't on television. Our email address, where you can send us an email, is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking with Professor Christopher Green from the University of Mississippi School of Law about the Advice and Consent Authority of the Senate. And if this is an interesting topic to you, I'll tell you how you can read more. That's next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. And we hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast, or you can find MPB Think Radio recordings on the website mpbonline.org slash radio. This morning, we're talking about the Advise and Consent Authority of the Senate with our guest, Professor Christopher Green from the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you would like to know more on this topic, you can go to the Senate's website, Senate.gov. I'll have the exact link on the show information on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. We have two phone calls to go to right now. Let's go to Bay Springs and talk with Jerry. Jerry, thanks for calling in. What's your comment or question? Well, I almost want to say don't get me started. Uh, but over the past 
four or five years. The, uh, the actions of the Senate as far as the Supreme Court nominees delaying the approval uh, of one and then fast-tracking the approval of, of another shows that we got some serious flaws in our system. Uh, the same thing with Mr. Trump. Um, after the Mueller report, after two impeachments, he should have been uh, taken to trial and convicted and actually should be arrested and put in jail. And um, there was something else. That, <laughs> it, I'm just saying the system is screwed up as far as that goes and needs to be fixed. And I don't know how in the world we're going to fix it. Uh, I'm kind of scared of a constitutional convention because the, the, the side that's done all of this stuff could very well control a lot of what was put in in the amendments to the Constitution. So uh, that was all the comment I had. I just uh, i am really disgusted with the system that we don't have equal justice for all like we're supposed to. Thanks, Thank Jerry. We appreciate you calling in. Well, Professor Green, do you think it's broken or it's just, uh, you know, to the victor goes the spoils? Well, so there's no question we've got a system with a lot of gridlock. Um, if you look at federal, you know, Madison is describing the uh, system in uh, Federalist 51, and he says, uh, look, this is ambition counteracting ambition. And you look at D.C. and you're like, well, wow, that's what we've got. Uh, is that really... <laughs> Is that really the way to, to make it work? Well, it, one thing, anytime you're evaluating a, a, a system, evaluating a, a law, evaluating a regulation, it's always hard to see what would have happened had we done something else. So you always have to ask, well, compared to what? Um, you look at our current system and you think, man, this is this seems crazy that the result of, uh, you know, whether you, you get a... a uh, uh, a judge, uh, you know, with the, the majority of the court depends on uh, things like, you know, just you know, uh, Justice Ginsburg's health, uh, Justice Scalia's health. Uh, they, they happen to die at particular times. Uh, that seems like a kooky way to decide major questions of policy uh, based on the, uh, just actuarial tables. So some of the reforms that uh, we could do statutorily, um, uh, I mean, here's one we could do. We could say, we're not going to have uh, a new seat come up anytime somebody dies. That's it's not going to turn on that. We're just going to have a new seat, uh, a new appointment every two years. Okay, so you could just have these regular, uh, regular appointments, and you don't have the power to kind of control your successor. You think, my goodness, these people are on the court for 30, 40 years, and then they also have the power to kind of wait for a favorable administration to retire. Uh, so that it's it's almost like this uh, kind of House of Lords hereditary. Uh, control that that doesn't seem like a, a, a sensible way to do it. Well, one way you could avoid it um, would be to float the size of the court and, and just have have a new hearing every two years. You still would have a problem that the Senate has has the uh, the power to say no. And if you lose this, if you have a Senate and presidency in different hands, uh, you know you're going to have uh, uh, you know, bilateral monopolies where you only have one seller and one buyer. Uh, tend to be very unstable situations in markets. And this is basically you know, the same kind of thing. You have two people, both of whom have to say yes for the thing to happen. 
Uh, and if they're in very, very different, uh, uh, different uh, hands or hands of uh, people with very, very different views, uh, that's gonna really be difficult to do. Uh, I think generally the political polarization, uh, the fact that most of the blue dog Democrats have gone Republican, uh, makes makes the political situation with the Senate versus the, the president a little more fraught uh, than it used to be. Uh, but it's hard to know. There, you know. So, you know, one thing that uh, Professor Gershon has, has just been remarkable, you know, found so remarkable, uh, President Washington had some of his nominees turned down by the Senate. Um, if you look back at the, the controversies within the Republican Party, like the 1880s, 1870s, 1880s, it's crazy how acrimonious things are between senators and the presidency. Um, uh, James Garfield was was killed by somebody who, I mean, he's delusional, but somebody who thought that he could be, get an appointment uh, because he was of the uh, 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 faction of the Republican Party that uh, Chester Arthur uh, controlled. He sh as he shot Garfield, uh, he says, "I'm a stalwart, and now Arthur's going to be president." He thought he could become a you know part of the Ministry of France as a result. I mean, it was delusional, but it, you know the acrimonious background uh, of of that time was. Uh, I mean, it makes the current stuff seem like like child's play. Um, so, you know, it's not just a, a function of the moment. It's not particular political people uh, taking advantage of it. It's not Trump, okay? Um, and, it, you know, it was before Robert Bork. Uh, television certainly has, has played a role in intensifying it. Political polarization has played a role, but it has always been uh, pretty crazy. Um, there's been, you know, seas, you know, there's been periods of calm uh, but I, it seems like the background uh, situation is crazy. Anytime it's not crazy, you should be a little surprised. Oh, makes me want to go home and read the Pelican Brief book. <laughs> Let's go to Loosedale and speak with Martin. Martin, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today when our guest is Professor Christopher Green from the University School, uh, University of Mississippi School of Law, and we're talking about advice and consent of the Senate. What's your comment or question? In the early 60s or 70s, it seems to me like the president would bring in the two leaders of the Senate, and they'd come to a compromise of who he was going to nominate. Whatever happened to that? Well, I, it, you know, in terms of how the Senate operates, um, you know, political polarization has been a big part of it. So where you've got a, you know, a clear median voter, the person who's in the middle that you think, okay, you know, that person will be in the, in the majority, um, uh, you, can, you can just ask that senator, okay, who, who are you willing to, uh, uh, who are you willing to go with? And I, you know, I think it's, it, it seems pretty likely, we don't know quite what was happening behind the scenes, that at some point the president had to uh, at least try to guess uh, who Joe Manchin would be fine with, okay? So if you look at, like, the person in the middle, the person who is highly unlikely to be in the minority on really any issue, uh, or the, you know, the collection of senators who, who uh, are, are there, um, uh, you know, talk to them and, and say, uh, well, you know, are, you know, would you, you know, vote no on Ketanji Brown-Jackson? I don't know whether the president specifically directly asked him that or whether the president... Uh, you know, try, try to figure it out. Um, but I think the president does, uh, you know, basically talk to the relevant power players. A lot of what's going on is is theater for uh, uh, kind of state election purposes. So, you know, a lot of senators, they, they want to have something they can play for a clip. 
Uh, and it really doesn't have anything to do with whether or not this particular nominee is going to get confirmed. Uh, I mean, she's you know you know going to get confirmed. I think uh, it's going to be a closer vote than it than it could have been. Uh, but you know, a lot of this is just behind the scenes. Uh, I, I suspect. Um, and uh, even in the '60s, it was, you know, we weren't. Uh, uh, you know, we didn't know that wasn't on the newspapers. Uh, and you know, they say if you remember the sixties, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson, he's got uh, uh, you know uh, justices uh, uh, Abe Fortas. The situation with him, I mean, he was kind of part of the presidential uh, advisory group, even while he's on the court, uh, and ends up being having having some some crooked uh, crooked stuff going on uh, at the same uh, same time. It, you know. I don't think that's a golden age that we necessarily want to go back to, um, but it, um, you know, we try to understand people's other people's uh, uh, views of the world, views of the Constitution, views of the Republic, uh, the best we can, and get along as 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 best we can. But there are a lot of other things going on, and you know, so you always have to ask compared to what you always have to ask at what cost, okay? Uh, and if you're paying a political cost for engaging in cooperative behavior in DC, well, those folks aren't gonna last that long, okay? So if you've gotta have a you know, career to have some stability, well, sometimes you need some red meat to show, show in your ads. We take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Our guest is, is Christopher Green, professor of law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. We just watched or we listened on MPB to the Supreme Court nomination hearing for Kataji Brown-Jackson. When were they first broadcast on TV? I'll tell you next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. For being part of In Legal Terms, if you've missed our program, you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel on YouTube. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are most of our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. 
In 1981, when Ronald Reagan nominated Sandra Day O'Connor to become the first female justice on the Supreme Court, the bulletin led every TV news broadcast and major newspaper in the country and many abroad. O'Connor's confirmation hearings that September became a huge media event. There were more requests for press credentials than there had been for the Senate Watergate Committee hearings in 1973. A new media institution, Cable TV, carried the hearings live, a first for a judicial nomination. We're talking with Christopher Green, professor of law at the University of Mississippi School of Law, about the Senate's advise and consent authority for judiciary and for treaties. Let's take our last call of the hour from Gulfport. We're going to talk with Mary. Mary, thanks for calling in. What's your comment or question? Thank you for uh, taking my call. Uh, the first is uh, that uh, fellow that called earlier, Jerry. I agree with him 100%. I'm just saying. But my question for the professor is, why are we lacking in decorum when it comes to some of these um, Senate hearings? Because I can think of four off the top of my head who had nothing good to say about anybody except their agenda, which, as the professor said, they're just trying to get reelected in their state as, you know, red meat. But it's, uh, it's heart-wrenching to see them in action because it's as if they don't care how bad they look as long as they get their three or five or, in some cases, ten minutes of fame. What can be done to to reel these people in? I was going to say gentlemen and one lady, but I decided I wouldn't use that phrase. So I just, I, it's, it makes me heart sick. It weighs heavy on my heart to see on TV these people gesticulating and, and cutting people down. That should not be allowed. You ask your question, and if you have a, a, a difference of opinion, that's fine. But to be as... I don't know, as horrendously behaving as these people were, it shouldn't, it just shouldn't be allowed. That's all. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is the, this is one of the, one of the evils of the age. Uh, Just a lack of decorum in lots of, uh, lots of areas. And uh, I get, I mean, as, as people have talked about, you know, the impact of television, uh, I keep coming back to, I mean, so I, I would say um, the long-term cure is uh, spending more time reading books. Um, so I, I would encourage everybody to read read this old Neil Postman book from the 80s, uh, but amusing ourselves to death. It's a fantastic thing. It, it seems like um, if these senators have read that, uh, they... Uh, uh, they didn't uh, didn't take it to heart. Uh, some of the senators really did push back, uh, and uh, Ben Sass had some very very sharp words for his Republican colleagues about uh, really clown behavior. Uh, so there is at least some reaction, uh, even from people. You know, he said he's not going to vote for uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, uh, but he really did not like how his his colleagues were behaving. So you sort of you know you hope we'll have a better examples uh, in public life, uh, people. Uh, just behaving. But in general, I'd say, you know, read a book, uh, uh, teach your kids to read books. Uh, maybe in 30 or 40 years, we'll uh, be able to engage in, in careful, reflective thought in public uh, uh, better, but uh, hunker down for the meantime. 
Chris, this is, you know, it's been such an interesting conversation. I, I, and time is flying. I wish we had two hours. But um, one, one question that I think a lot of people have is that this power is given to the Senate and not to the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives is, uh, you know, decided by uh, populations in the state, how many uh, representatives they have. But the Senate, every state has two senators. So that skews more in favor of smaller states. Why, why, did, why was the Constitution designed that way? So basically the short answer, you know, at the time we were framing the convention, you have to think of the states as more akin to separate nations. Uh, so under the Articles of Confederation, you needed unanimous uh, uh, consent to change them. They said, well, we're gonna go with a three quarters requirement for amendments, but uh, Article 5 specifically says you can't take away equal uh, 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 suffrage in the Senate. So it really was an, is an artifact of the way in which our country was formed as a union of these uh, largely independent of each other entities. And uh, uh, the powers given to the Senate, the specific powers given to the, to the Senate, uh, they carry over that small state bias, uh, which, I mean, again, is, you know, if you think of, uh, we don't wanna have, you know, just tanks rolling across international boundaries, well, that's a small, you know, that that is a benefit to small entities like, you know, Ukraine, as opposed to big entities like Russia. Uh, it's kind of similar to that. If you think, well, you may have to make a deal, they both have to say yes, they have an equal right to say no. And because the Constitution gets formed out of that background, uh, you get uh, the bicameral uh, situations. You have one house based on population, another just based purely on number of states. And uh, that's the system we've got. And they baked it in permanently into Article 5. So the only way to get rid of that would be to have an entirely new Constitution, which some people say we should do. It would be, um, ah, you know, you, you want to be careful before you, uh, uh, before you, you do that. Again, compared to what, and at what cost are, are two big questions you want to uh, you always want to ask. So well, I guess my question is why did the why do you think the, the framers gave this advising consent power to the Senate and not to the House of Representatives? Yeah, I, I mean I think it was it was sort of seen it was seen as sort of an aristocratic ish uh, branch. You got uh, you kind of you know the the, the three different uh, types of government, you know, democracy and monarchy and aristocracy. And they thought, well, you know, it's it's kind of the the more aristocratic. They'll know who the people are to a point. They'll know you know all the secret stuff that goes on in negotiation a little bit better. Uh, they thought maybe it'll be more like the John Jay types uh, uh, in charge. But um, hard to know. Uh, you look at the Senate and you think, uh, it's hard to know whether there's more clown activity in the Senate or the House. Uh, but uh, there's, there's plenty of misbehavior in both, I think. Thank you, Professor Green. We are so glad that you were able to join us. We took up your valuable time, and we appreciate it. It's wonderful to be on. That's going to wrap up today's In Legal Terms. Thank you, Java Chapman and Jay White, for putting our show on. And for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I am Liz Gill. Join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 